The Daily Rios Digest, February 27th, 2022. Movie Monday. So this is Movie Monday for February 21st. I think I mentioned here and there that I am all in with the Cobra Kai series. I didn't watch when it premiered on YouTube, but I started watching in early 2021. And it took one season to get hooked. Uh, Probably, really, it only took a few episodes. The original movie came out when I was 11, so of course that movie and that trilogy is part of my formative movie-watching years, and I think that's why the series stands out for me, because it has a ton of callbacks, it plays with the legacy, there's a Romeo and Juliet nature to it, Uh, it brings back characters and rivalries, and dialogue callbacks from the original movies. It is completely over the top, and and the show knows it, right? It, it knows that it is playing in nostalgia, and it has jokes, and it plays jokes with, with uh, uh, the music and um, the decade of the 80s. I mean, it, it knows what it's doing. So I did a rewatch of the series in anticipation, anticipation of season four, and it did not disappoint at all. The, season four expands a bit with the adults, so the focus sometimes shifts, but there still were amazing moments, jaw-dropping moments. Uh, the All-Valley Tournament was great. Honest-to-God teary-eyed moments, uh, laugh-out-loud situations, and all of it, by the time I got done watching season four, I was like, yeah, this is why this series keeps getting renewed, and it's renewed for season five. I love it. I totally recommend it. And it is good nostalgia TV, which we are in the height of, uh, which we've been in the height of probably for the last number of years. So at the end of every season, the show teases uh, some kind of character callback like an old character is going to make its way back onto the next season. And we almost got that in season four, almost. So it got me thinking, who could they have put in that spot at the end of season four as a tease for season five to get fans uh, really excited? Now, you know, the person that they brought in, great, okay, but we've seen that person in the show already in Cobra Kai. And I was like, okay, trying to rack my brain. Could they have brought in, you know, uh, an old Cobra Kai colleague of Johnny's or, uh, you know, who who could we bring back? And this all got me thinking um, that there was still a Karate Kid movie that I hadn't seen. And this is why, even though I've been talking about Cobra Kai, ultimately this is a Movie Monday segment. So when I was thinking about all the possibilities about connections to the old movies, I said, you know, I've never seen Karate Kid 4. I I think I've seen bits and pieces of like some of the fights on YouTube, but I've never watched 
Karate Kid 4, which was called The Next Karate Kid. This is the one that features Hilary Swank. Hilary Swank is The Next Karate Kid. It has Pat Morita in it, and uh, Michael Ironside plays the big villain, because of course it's Michael Ironside. And it came out in 1994. So I was thinking, oh, you know, the one other character major character that they could bring in on Daniel's side is the character that Hilary Swank played. Uh, uh, it was She was called Julie Pierce. And I read some interviews and heard some, some of the actors talk in Cobra Kai, and the way they detail this is that anybody that has come into contact with Mr. Miyagi or, or that is part of the Miyagi universe is fair game to show up in Cobra Kai. So come on, right there, Julie Pierce, the next Karate Kid. So I was like, let me watch this movie so maybe I could figure out how they could possibly put her in this uh, in this series. So I watched it. <laughs> and as much as I love the original trilogy, and yes, that includes Karate Kid 3, I do like Karate Kid 3, the next Karate Kid is pretty awful. It, it's It's not good. <laughs> the story wanders, the villains are not all that, you know, they're not all that great. The journey for Julie, you could see where the character could have a journey, but I'm not quite certain that the events led to the outcome. At least not the way the movie thinks it did. Um, her love interest is bad. The, the whole movie is steeped in 1994 sexism. There are some interesting nuggets with Miyagi's backstory, uh, with his war career, which we touched on in the original trilogy as well. Uh, ultimately, it comes down to training at a monk monastery, a wounded bird, and Michael Ironside as this, you know, school security chief slash gym teacher villain. I don't know. Um, it's not good. It's, it's really just not good. So, uh, and even the music is not good. <laughs> so I, even though the movie was not so good, I was like, okay, how could she fit into Cobra Kai? Right. Because it would have to be through Miyagi. Right. So I just figured the way, I, I think it would be hard for Daniel to just suddenly, um, gain the knowledge that there's this other student that Miyagi had. I, I think uh, Daniel and Julie probably could have met at Miyagi's funeral, which happened back in 2011, I think the show said. So that could be their connection. They could have already met, even though he hasn't talked about her yet in the series. And then maybe the way to bring her into the Cobra Kai series is... Daniel uses her as a secret weapon, maybe as uh, a third uh, dojo, you know, to compete with Cobra Kai, but Cobra Kai doesn't know about her because uh, she she took place on the East Coast. I think the story took place in Maryland. I totally forget. But anyway, um, she could be this other rival studio and nobody knows that she's working with Daniel. And maybe they don't even realize that she's working with the Miyagi style of karate as well, right? So I think that could be really interesting if you're going to bring this character in. And I hope they do because they should. I mean, it just it just expands on the 
nostalgia and the kookiness that is Cobra Kai. So yeah, you can, I would suggest watching Cobra, uh, Karate Kid 4, the next Karate Kid on YouTube. Like just watch a bunch of clips in some kind of like order and that's pretty much all you need. Um, I'm thinking about digging a little deeper into the Karate Kid franchise. Uh, there was a cartoon, of course, because there was a cartoon of everything in the 80s. 13 episodes in 1989. Um, I'm going to watch the Karate Kid reboot with Jackie Chan, but apparently that movie doesn't count because it is a reboot. Um, and the creators of Cobra Kai said, you know, that's not exactly part of the Miyagi-verse. So, but I still want to see it. Um, I, I watched a bunch of fights on YouTube. Um, the camera seemed to be a little too close for some of the fight scenes. They really should pull back so you can see everything that's going on. But I'll probably watch that. And then I found out that there's going to be a Karate Kid The Musical. And it's going to run starting on May 25th, 2022 at Stages in St. Louis. The book is by the original film screenwriter Robert Mark Kamen. Uh, Drew Gasparini will serve as the lyricist and composer of the score. I am unfamiliar with Drew's work, so I, I can't speak to what it's going to be like. Movies turned into musicals have a very scattered track record. Uh, you know, one in particular, Footloose, uh, is not one of my favorites. But the reason I bring that up is because Footloose had a very definitive soundtrack the movie and then what they did is they took that soundtrack and gave the songs to certain characters that's something that they could probably do with the karate kid as well um you know think of you're the best around nothing's gonna da, 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 da. like they're gonna have to give that to a character or glory of love or power of love no glory of love or whatever that one from from the second one is um so I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do. I, I get real squeamy when I hear that a movie's being turned into a musical, especially one like this. It's like, ooh, okay, we'll see. So that's my Cobra Kai talk. That's my Karate Kid talk. I'm going to have to wait until season five, but until then, I'll see if, uh, I'll see what other Karate Kid stuff I'm, I, I can get into. So what's the social scene like here? Any nightclubs? A strip club called The Hose Zone and a tragic gay bar called Innuendo. Friday night's football games and then tailgate parties at the Malmart parking lot. Saturday night is movie night, regardless of what's playing at the Bijou. And you better get there early because we don't have reserved seating in Riverdale on Sunday nights. Thank God for HBO. Veronica Lodge, Kevin Keller. Veronica's new here. Kevin is gay. Thank God. Let's be best friends. Timeline Tuesday. Timeline Tuesday for February of 2022. This is where I take a look at some comic history and I go back and check out some anniversaries 10 years ago, 25 years ago, 50 years ago, and I do have a 75 years ago for anniversaries for this particular month of February. So these uh, these little, you know, um, comic history facts are about comics that came out in the month that I do the Timeline Tuesday on. Um, these are not cover dates. Uh, as best as I can, you know, manage to discover, these are all actual February books uh, from whatever years we're going to talk about. 
And like I said, I use a bunch of resources online and some magazines and some notes that I have. So I try to get as close as I can to the actual uh, anniversary month. So here we go. 10 years ago, February of 2012. I mean, this seems like it was just right around the corner. So I have a ton of actual release notes and, and you know, it's easy to find links online as well, because as I said, it's only 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, what's celebrating 10 years in February, February of 2022? Uh, we had Star Wars Dawn of the Jedi Zero and then issue one. This was from Dark Horse Comics by John Ostrander and Jan Dersima. They also created the Star Wars Legacy series. Dawn of the Jedi is set almost 26,000 years before episode four, before A New Hope. Primarily, it's set in the year 25793 BBY. And the series focuses on the Jedi Order, which is spelled J-E-apostrophe-D-A-I-I, a group of Force sensitives on the planet Typhon who are the predecessors to the Jedi Order. It all takes place in a time before the polarization of the light and dark sides of the Force. And the series is the first to be set before the Republic which apparently was a new publishing era that includes all materials set before the founding of the Galactic Republic. Dawn of the Jedi ran for 15 issues, and it was split up into three five-issue story arcs, which were entitled Force Storm, The Prisoner of Bogan, and Force War. And then some of the characters that it focused on were Shay Coda, Tasha Rio and Seknos Wrath, as well as Zesh, a force hound of the Rakatan Infinite Empire, who recently arrived on Typhon, and also the mad Jedi Dagon Loke and Dagon's plan to take over the Order. And then Force War focused on the Infinite Empire's arrival and attempt to uh, overthrow the Typhon system. Eventually, once the third arc wrapped up, uh, there were no more comics over at Dark Horse because they would uh, Star Wars comics would move to Marvel in 2015. Ten years ago gave us the 100th issue of Darkness. This was Series 3 of Darkness, which started in 2007 with Phil Hester as writer. It would run for ten issues. And then it did a legacy number jump to issue number 75. And then we went from 75 to issue 100, which landed in 2012. And it was timed for uh, the Darkness 2 game. It also was Image's 20th anniversary. And this 100th issue was by Phil Hester and a bunch of artists. And then David Hine and Jeremy Hahn would take over with issue 101. From Marvel, they started to release some original graphic novels entitled Season 1. These were apparently supposed to be modern takes of classic origins. The first one was uh, covered Fantastic Four, and it was written by Roberto Aguirre-Sacasa, pencil pencils by David Marquez. Uh, the first wave included X-Men, 
Fantastic Four, X-Men, Daredevil, and Spider-Man. And uh, X-Men was by Dennis Hopeless and Jamie McKelvey. Daredevil was by Anthony Johnston and Wellington Alves. And Spider-Man was by Cullen Bunn and Neil Edwards. And then eventually we would get Iron Man and Thor and Hulk and Ant-Man, Wolverine, Avengers, Doctor Strange. It was interesting because at the time, Joe Quesada was on record as saying that he did not like graphic novels. And that, at you know, we're talking 2012 or, or prior to 2012, like in the 2000s. I guess he felt there was really no inroads to, to original graphic novels being profitable. Certainly these days we take for granted that the book market is very profitable for publishers. But in the 2000s, the mid-2000s, I mean, that was just, that was, for Marvel and DC, that was still a growing thing. And then what happened is DC released um, Superman Earth One. And that was a series of graphic novels that launched in 2010 with J. Michael Straczynski as writer. And that first season one Superman book did very well. So you have to imagine, as Marvel often does, they were, you know, wait until DC does something first. They were like, okay, uh, you know, Joe Quesada hates graphic novels, but suddenly they're like, okay, let's put out a whole bunch of original graphic novels. I've never read them. I don't know how they hold up, um, but they have that same kind of premise. Let's let's revamp and recreate um, our heroes for a new generation of readers. I mean, really, that's what Superman Earth One was. You know, let's give a Superman story for people who don't read the comics in a in a collection or in a package that could do well in the book market. So that's how we got season one from Marvel. In the world of Archie comics, we we get a new series entitled Kevin Keller, who was a new-ish character at this point. Issue one of 15 by Dan Parent. And uh, Kevin Keller was introduced in 2010 in the Veronica, Veronica title, titled, uh, or issue number 202, short-lived series, but that character then eventually would make its way to, um, you know, Riverdale and other places. And then we also got a Winter Soldier series for the first time, issue one of 19 by Ed Brubaker and Jackson Geis. Uh, Black Widow was featured heavily in it. The Winter Soldier, he had a one-shot during Civil War, but this was the character's first ongoing series. Let's go 25 years ago to February of 1997, and we start with Quantum and Woody, number one of 21 from Valiant. This was written by Christopher Priest under the name of James D. Owsley and the artist Mark Bright. They are the world's worst superhero team. Eric Henderson, Woody Van Chelten, uh, they go on to investigate the deaths of their fathers, and in doing so, they become victims of an accident that turns their bodies into pure energy. And then they have to wear these metal gauntlets that have to be slammed together every 24 hours to reset their matrix or their atoms will break apart. It is a complete buddy superhero romp, and if you're someone that missed uh, or in, I should say, if you're someone who enjoyed the Justice League bwahaha humor of, you know, Demetrius and Giffen and company, um, not just the humorous parts, but when the Justice League books also got 
strangely dramatic. If you liked all that and then you were like, oh, I missed that. There was nothing else like it. You need to read Quantum and Woody. It is it is really funny. It is definitely in the style that Priest likes to do. You know, I, I even feel like because of Quantum and Woody, Priest was able to really stretch those particular well, they're not really time jumps, but those those kind of odd scene jumps that get um, labeled. Uh, I feel like this is where he really was making a play for that kind of writing, and then eventually it would morph into what he did in Black Panther with Marvel Knights in 1998 or 1999 or whenever that was, which I also love. So Quantum and Woody, 25 years, such a good series, so damn funny. Um, I don't know how you could read it. There there were some trades. Um, I don't know what the back issues go for, but um, I love it. And I haven't read it in a long time, but uh, it's it's great. It's really great. Also, 25 years ago this month of February, we have Thunderbolts number one, another fantastic series. Kurt Busiek, Mark Bagley. Uh, this was that first issue that hit everybody by surprise when you turn to that final page. It really was something that can't happen today where you discover who these characters really are. And um, it spawned out of Onslaught. Most of the heroes were away in the Heroes Reborn universe, so that opened up Marvel to do a title like Thunderbolts. Busiek would run with the title up to issue number 34, uh, he was writing Avengers at that time as well. For me, I, I, I love the Busiek stuff. It's really great. Great foundation. For me, when Fabian Nicieza picks up the series and um, takes it up to issue 50, I really like that run because he managed to morph in a lot of like connections to Golden Age Marvel. He brought back the villain Scourge. And when you find out who it is, it, it just makes a whole bunch of sense. Um, it's so good. Love what Busiek did. Really love what Nietzscheeza did. And then I think Nietzscheeza would continue on. Yeah, he would continue on up to issue 75. I stopped reading it because then right after that, they decided to make it. They turned the book into an underground fight club, I think. And eventually the series ended with issue 81 in 2003. It would restart in 2004 as new Thunderbolts with a new number one issue, again with Fabian Nicieza and Tom Grumman on art. Eventually, it would morph into legacy numbering again. Um, somewhere in the 140s during Marvel's heroic age, the title would change again, this time with Luke Cage as the main lead, and it would eventually run up to issue 174 in 2012, where it would change, once again, to the Dark Avengers, and that would run through issue 190 in 2013. A fairly long series for one that started in the 90s, right? You know, usually we weren't getting titles that lasted that long. But the first 75, you can't go wrong with. Just really stellar comics. Also, 25 years ago, Adventures in the DC Universe, 1 of 19, mostly by Stephen Vance and John Delaney. Uh, this was a comic uh, that was coming out concurrent with the Superman animated adventures. 
and uh, featured more characters throughout the DC Universe in the animated style. And this was years before the Justice League animated series had premiered. So it was kind of like your first dip into what these characters might be like in the animated universe. Marvel also did Marvel Adventures at this time, 25 years ago, one of 18. And this title premiered a month after... Uh, the final issues of Adventures of Spider-Man and Adventures of X-Men. And this was kind of like a spiritual follow-up. And again, kind of playing within the Marvel Universe, but in an animated style. And the cover blurb was all new Titanic tales in the animated style. 25 years ago, we got Superman 122, which is setting the stage for next month's uh, issue, Superman 123. And the creation of Electric Superman. So we have that to look forward to in March. And then we also had some more crossovers between companies such as Profit and Cable, uh, She and Daredevil, Silver Surfer and Weapon Zero, etc., etc. Fifty years ago, February of 1972, Green Lantern Green Arrow number 89 wraps up the Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams run and also wraps up the title as it goes on hiatus and it wouldn't pick back up again until 1976 with Green Lantern 90, also by Denny O'Neill and Mike Grell. Now the series would go on hiatus, but the team, the team of Green Lantern Green Arrow would go into backup stories in Flash starting with 218. And then finally, 75 years ago, February 1947, all-Star Comics number 34 from DC. Not a big character anniversary, but this was the first appearance of the villain known as the Wizard. Uh, a villain for the Justice Society of America, eventually, you know, would be designated an Earth 2 villain. And this villain of Wizard um, would be partly responsible for Black Canary, the daughter of the original Black Canary, uh, to get her sonic powers, which was told in a Justice League America, Justice League, uh, Justice Society of America story in the early 80s. Um, I think it was called Crisis in the Thunderbolt Dimension. And that's where you learned that, you know, the Black Canary that, that's part of Justice League of America is not the Golden Age Black Canary. It is her daughter, and they made a little switcheroo when they traveled from one Earth to the other, and that's why the Earth-1 Black Canary has sonic powers, and it all goes back to something that the Wizard did. So, 75 years of the Wizard. All right, there you go. That's your Timeline Tuesday comic history look for February. Hi, uh, this is Mark Russell, the writer behind Not All Robots, which tells the story of a future world in which robots have taken all the jobs. And human beings um, are only able to survive because the government has assigned one robot to each household uh, as a sort of its breadwinner. And I think it's something that you will enjoy because it's you'll see you recognize a lot of yourself, a lot of the world that we currently live in in this comic book. And uh, I tried to make it funny, too. Uh, and it's got amazing art by Mike Diodato. So please, by all means, uh, give it a shot. There you go. We're kicking off New Comics Wednesday for February 23rd with a look at AW Studios' Not All Robots trade, $9.99, as you just heard, 
Mark Russell, Mike Diodato, Lou, Lou Ridge, uh, Lee Luridge. And uh, I am someone who I enjoy Mark Russell's work. So I thought, you know, let's give this a nod because it's something I want to read. Uh, AWA Studios is a you know, relatively new publishing house that I don't talk about much. So I thought that would be nice to cover that here for New Comics Wednesday. Let's go to Dark Horse. Snow Angels Trade Paperback Volume 1, Jeff Lemire and Jock. This collects the four-issue series that was released on Comixology, $19.99. Millie and May don't really know how their people came to live here. No one does, not even their wise and gentle father. On Milliken's 12th birthday, their father takes the two girls on an overnight skate down the trench a coming-of-age ritual to teach them how to fish the frozen river, how to hunt the wild trench dogs that wander its frigid banks, and how to give proper thanks to their frozen gods, the Colden Ones. It's the trip of a lifetime until the girls push beyond the borders of their humble land and awaken the trench's deadly defender, the snowman. And then what follows next is an action-packed story of survival, loss, and redemption. Those are two creators, Jeff Lemire and Jock. You know, that's a pretty strong creative team, so I have to imagine that's going to be a decent read. From Scout Comics, Distorted Number 1, Salvatore Vivenzio, Gabriel Falzoni. Somewhere in the world there is someone who feels different, special, maybe cursed, who is losing their mind right now. Well, you're not alone. Take James, for example. He would like to run away from his parents and from a life that doesn't belong to him. On the other hand, Tom is forced to face his past and hunt down his own kind, like a hound on the leash of an unknown master. Brenner is on the hunt for money and a piece he can't find anywhere. They are three people whose superpowers are more like a burden. And in this world, there are no superheroes. That's $3.99. From Image, we have the Supermassive one-shot for $5.99. Kyle Higgins, Ryan Parrott, Matt Grom, Francesco Mana. Uh, this is the superhero crossover event of 2022, featuring Radiant Black, Radiant Black, Inferno Girl Red, and the first appearance of Rogue Sun. The future of Image's superhero universe is here. Just the one shot that I was like, oh, okay. It's wanting to set up a new thing, right? I always love books like that, so let me give it a read. And then we have, from Self-Made Hero, we have Frank and Freud, a graphic novel by Pierre Pedru and Lionel Richerand. In 1909, while on a fundraising lecture tour in America, Sigmund Freud met Horace Frank, an early disciple of his theories of psychoanalysis, whose traumatic childhood and complicated personal life later cast a shadow over Freud's professional career and came close to almost destroying his reputation. This little-known and ultimately tragic true story of two divorces, three deaths, and a menage a quatre, as well as the questionable motives behind Freud's involvement in it, is the subject of this collaboration. There you go. There's your short list for New Comics Wednesday.
For this Thursday segment, I have a PSA. If you are maybe not familiar with big cities or you are touring a big city, this, uh, this knowledge could be very helpful. So this is coming about because the other night I was walking uh, from work to the train station in Philly. I was rounding Macy's by City Hall to get to the uh, Jefferson train station. And as I round the corner, someone is uh, coming the other way and we meet, you know, almost right at the corner and they almost bump into me and the person gets scared and, and you know, kind of makes a, a, a sound of annoyance. And all I could do was think, well, maybe you should learn how to walk on a, on a city street. Because when you're walking on a sidewalk in a busy street, in a busy city, and really anywhere, you're supposed to walk on the right side of whatever direction you're facing. So for instance, I was walking on the right side of the pavement with my right shoulder directly near the building because that's direction that's the direction I was going. And if anybody's coming towards me, usually they would also walk on the right side of their as of their direction, which means their right shoulder was facing the the gutter and the street. It's pretty much it pretty much follows the way we drive in the states, right? We drive on the right side of the road. And it's the same thing when you walk. You have to walk on the right side of the road. So if you're if you're rounding a corner and the building at that corner is to your left shoulder, you better leave some room because if you round the corner and your left is facing that building, somebody who's coming around who has the right of way is going to bump into you like I almost did to this person. And really if I, I should have, I should have just kept going and taught that person a lesson. This actually happened one time uh, uh, on the, one of the subways in South Philly, one of the subway entrances. When a lot of people get off the subway and they're coming up from the, you know, from the subway to the pavement, sometimes those staircases can can be uh, pretty jammed up. But if there are people coming down, you better get to the right side of the staircase. So. I was coming down, I was stepping off the pavement, down, walking down to the train station, and there were a bunch of people coming up, and one person was still coming up on my side of the staircase, and I kept going, and that person had to like quickly move out of the way, and, and again, made a sound of annoyance, and other people were even like, kind of like, hey, you almost knocked that, and I'm like, get on the right side of the street, uh, the, the staircase then, get out of my way, basically, and um, all I could think was if you've ever been to New York, New York, and you were at Madison Square Garden, especially during rush hour, there's a major staircase that leaves from the train station all the way up to the, the you know, to the street. People are going up and down and they are following the handrails, right? Your right hand, if you're going up, is on a handrail. If you're coming down, your right hand is on the handrail of the other side and you're coming down. And if you try to go up where people are coming down, it ain't going to happen. You're going to get squashed and it's going to be your fault. Nobody's going to have any sympathy for you.
So this is my little PSA, my little the more you know. Don't be putting your left shoulder against a building and trying to round a corner. Because if I'm on that other side coming around, I'm knocking you over. <laughs> it's just plain and simple as that. You wouldn't do that. You can't do that when you're driving, right? If you're making a left-hand turn from your right lane, you can't just cut right into the, the right lane of the oncoming traffic. You're going to cause an accident, right? So when you're walking on a busy street, think of it like as you're driving. Get your ass on the right-hand side or you're going to get knocked down. And that's just the way it is. That is some funky music there. Love that. So this is this segment is new. This is uh, my ongoing look at the uh, series first issue special from DC from the 70s in anticipation of Tom King's new black label book with uh, Jorge Fornes entitled Danger Street. So I'm going to talk about one issue per segment, maybe two depending um you know i uh, there are 13 issues and one or two stories that uh were were printed after the series had ended so um i don't exactly have 13 weeks leading up to may when danger street drops unless it gets delayed so i might do one issue i might cover two issues anyway uh this is what i'm doing here this is a, a look at the first issue of first issue special uh, I'm going to talk briefly about the issue, my reactions. I'm not going to go super in-depth. Um, but then I thought I could try to give some thoughts on maybe how the character might be used in Danger Street. Uh, I have no prior knowledge. I don't know what the story's about. I, I only know what information DC gave us. I just think it could be a nice guessing game kind of thing. And I could focus on... Um, the characters and maybe what I would do uh, with with the mix of them, right? Because that's what Danger Street is about. Taking all the characters from First Issue Special and throwing them into some kind of mystery. So here we go. First Issue Special, number one, came out in January of 1975 and features Atlas by uh, Jack Kirby. Atlas, on the cover it says, Is He Legend? Or man. Now, at this point, Kirby was only working on Commandy and OMAC and some war comics at DC and some other stuff. The, all the New God stuff had ended around like 1972, 1973. By the way, you can read this entire series of first issue special on the DCU app. So, again, this is by Jack Kirby with inks and lettering by D. Bruce Berry. And I'm going to read uh, Kirby's concept notes for Atlas here. Atlas lives at a time when man is rising from barbarism. 
Earth is crawling with strange peoples and living mysteries which have survived the ages. There are savage empires with sprawling cities and hidden tribes, like the skull worshippers who live underground. Acting like driver ants, they swarm out to kill. Chagra, the seeker, what he seeks is immortality and power. He seeks the crystal mountain. That's why he rescues the baby Atlas, whose farmer folks have been killed by raiders. He molds Atlas into a giant of almost invincible strength. He poses as a kindly old counselor, but uses Atlas to gain his own ends. They travel together into all sorts of weird adventures, relying on the strength of Atlas. Kubla, the oppressor, is an enemy of Atlas. Kubla has a million slaves. Atlas sets out to free them. Atlas battles the headless idol. The man who defeats it can see everything on Earth for one day. I love that. The crystal ball. Atlas gets it from a dying man. It leads him to a king-sized discovery. And then finally, the crystal mountain, inside of which is the light force. Atlas uses it to conquer his enemies. Pretty much all of those things you find in the first issue. I mean, we open with Atlas and Chagra, and they are, they're kind of like a sideshow attraction, right? Whether it's uh, doing feats of strength or competitions or challenges in a way to gain money, to gain notoriety. And then Atlas comes across Kubla, the oppressor, and, and or comes across... Yeah, comes across Kubla the Oppressor and, and you know, uh, defeats him. And and then they feel like they have to leave the city. And then, then he runs into an old villain. And we get this flashback of Atlas as a boy and how his parents were killed, meeting Chagra, just like the concept note said. Um, there's a crystal that gives Atlas his strength. And uh, eventually Atlas grows up. And uh, we, go, we come back to the present, and Atlas is face-to-face -face with a man known as Hissa, and he's supposed to be some kind of human lizard, and he's probably the one that is responsible for Atlas, uh, Atlas's parents dying. And then the whole thing ends on a cliffhanger, uh, where I guess there's going to be a potential battle between Atlas and Hissa, but that would be... Uh, but like I said, it, the story ends, and then eventually the goal was to try to spin these out into a series if readers wrote in and said, hey, yeah, we want to see more of this concept. Now, his is, is supposedly supposed to be a lizard man, but a human lizard, but he's colored human skin tones, and I, I kind of wondered maybe they probably should have colored him some other color, like a... I don't know, like a gray-green or something. And uh, Atlas also manages to acquire the Helmet of Champions. I don't know if it particularly gives him any powers, but it probably could give him a, a status. And I did also find that there is an unpublished page from this story, and it features a scene between Chagra and Atlas where, where Chagra's really just basically lays it out that even though he's been like a father figure to him and a guardian, he has this ulterior motive. 
So Atlas knows about it, and yet Atlas is like, no, we must move on and do whatever it is we're supposed to do. It's, it really feels like, you know, like the labors of Hercules or Samson, a little bit of Thor and Asgard, even some of the origin tropes for Superman and Batman because Atlas is an orphan. I mean, it just feels like everything mixed into one. Um, I had to laugh in the story. I hope Tom King, King keeps this up. Uh, Atlas names himself a lot, or the narration names Atlas a lot. For instance, page one, he's Atlas the Great. And then chapter two, Atlas the Untamed, or Atlas the Child, Atlas the Avenger. <laughs> and I kind of think that would be something funny to, to keep going, depending on the situation. You know, he's like Atlas the, the Retreater, Atlas the Wrestler. Like, just keep it going. I, I think that would be great. The artwork is pure Kirby, uh, super amount of detail in the line work. Everything looks very, like it's just chiseled out of something. Um, the character, I like Atlas's character design, you know, with the hood and that helmet, and then he's bare chested and he's got that little, you know, skirt thing going on and the boots. Uh, he has an interesting look. Certainly the name means something, you know, to Greek mythology, the character would have some other appearances throughout the DC universe, minor appearances here and there, a few little appearances in Kingdom Come. He was also a background character in a few issues during Jeff Johns's Flash run in the early 2000s, somewhere in like the 180s. That was weird. And there are Golden and Silver Age appearances of different characters named Atlas that would go up against Superman. And that's why in All-Star Superman by Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely, uh, there's uh, a character also called Atlas and also Samson um, who are vying for, I think, Lois Lane's attention or whatever. Um, not the same Atlas, obviously, but, but the design for the Flash appearances is like Kirby's run and same as Kingdom Come. And then in 2008... The character did show up in a storyline featuring Atlas by James Robinson. I think the artist was Renato Guedes. This was around the time where Superman was leading up to New Krypton. Monel was part of the book. Uh, we had the Science Police. It was all leading to like the War of the Superman. And Atlas was just like Doomsday, like sort of just showed up and wanted to fight Superman. He had a really big battle with Krypto, which was kind of fun. And uh, he would show up randomly in issues of like Supergirl and Action Comics and War of the Superman, Jimmy Olsen, and then would later show up in two issues of James Robinson's Justice League of America in 2010. Also, oddly enough, here's a little tangent. If you're watching Superman and Lois, especially season one, there was a project called Project Hell or Project 7734. And it was created by Sam Lane. Well, that's actually part of this James Robinson run, which I didn't know about. And Atlas gets roped up into it. This whole Project 7734, and it's run by Sam Lane, and it features Steel. And I was like, oh my God, had I read these issues, maybe that would have meant even more as I was watching Superman and Lois. So I thought that was totally cool. And then Kirby's Atlas would also show up in issues of Bug, the Adventures of Forager, which was a Mike Allred series for Young Animal. And I think he's, I think Atlas is even featured on one or two of the covers. 
Oh, and I missed one here. He also made an appearance in Superboy, the one million issue. There was a, a double page spread of uh, various characters that would show up later in the Superboy series that the creators were like, okay, we want to try to do something here. And there is a headshot of Atlas as well, but uh, apparently they never got around to it. So how could this character fit within the story that Tom King is doing for Danger Street? And I had to read the, I had to find and read the text page for first issue special number one, because it talks about Kirby's creation of Atlas. I don't know if it's firsthand knowledge, secondhand knowledge or whatever, but there was something interesting in one of the descriptions. I don't exactly know who wrote this text page, but uh, they talk about Kirby's creation of Atlas, and one of the things, they talk about like legends and myths and how Kirby's so good at that. And then here's a direct quote. This is an era of instant legend. Electronic media and mass market magazines publicize any extraordinary feat so rapidly that new heroes, new legends are born every day. No sooner has the world's record for anything been broken then the media use their influence to announce the birth of a new star. And so the value of age wanes. A story is no longer a classic because it has been handed down from generation to generation. Our classics are now. The tales aimed at our decade, our year, our instant. And then it also says, Atlas is but the latest in a long series of visions of the past, present, future, unknown. I love everything that that said about electronic media, you know, uh, news spreading rapidly, the creation of new heroes, new legends. To me, that's like talking about today's influencers and reality TV and viral videos, right? And if you think about Atlas as a sideshow, um, you know, like a sideshow spectacle, and trying to raise money and try to raise notoriety uh, in this issue, it kind of makes sense. Like it's almost like like Chagra is using him maybe to to become wealthy and and have some fame for some other reason, right? And you know we've heard many stories of people getting abused by their agents and managers, and you know look at the whole Britney Spears thing that's been going on for decades, right? So. When I read that, I was like, oh, ooh, that could be very interesting. Like, maybe it's not a character of legend and lore. Maybe it's someone who thinks that they are this Atlas being, but takes place in the modern age, right? Because that's the thing about this mystery. Um, I know, I think they're going to go to like different lands and different worlds and different locations. So they certainly could go to Atlas's world, but we don't know where it is, even though the concept art mentioned earth we don't know the time period etc um but i also love that notion of atlas as like a viral uh influencer or atlas as you know trying to make a name for himself on on a platform on, a, on an app i think that's i think that could be really fun so i don't know if the, again i have no idea what the how the character is going to be used um i think one of the i think the first issue of danger street has a variant cover of, of Atlas by Steve Rude, battling creatures that look like they could have been designed by Kirby. 
Um, I don't know if that's for the first issue or for a later issue, but the notion that this being has an odd sense of himself is something that I got from the issue as well. And even from some of the James Robinson stuff that I was looking through, he's kind of like a man out of identity, not just out of time and out of space and, and whatever, but the, the identity of Atlas is so wrapped up in, in what he's trying to prove, I guess. So, uh, that's, that would be my guess to how the character may or may not be used in Danger Street, but... Uh, I think that's how I would use the character, you know, and we would learn something totally new about him or Chagra, you know, maybe it's Chagra that's doing it all. But again, for them to say that in the 70s about electronic media and mass market magazines, it's like, oh my God, that's, wow, that's, that's really interesting. And then also the line about a story is no longer a classic because it has been handed down from generation to generation. Our classics are now in this very instant. And that's so very true of fandom in all different ways, right? We always want to say, oh, this is the best ever. And then we get another movie. Oh, this is the best ever. And then we get another comic. Oh, this is the best ever, right? Like trying to trying to make classics instead of letting time make classics. So very interesting text piece uh, to kind of put a, an overview on what this character may or may not be for Danger Street. But this idea of a, a man trying to, chasing his identity, chasing his fame, chasing his place, I don't know. That could be fun. That could be fun. All right, like I said, that first issue doesn't drop until May, so we'll continue with the first issue special look. And um, again, I'm not sure if I'm going to do one or two issues for the next time. All right, if you like what you heard, peter at thedailyrios.com or leave a comment on the website at thedailyrios. Or hit me up on Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Go follow the Daily Rios Instagram. Uh, and uh, if you are someone that uh, gets your podcasts on a different podcast than, or podcast catcher than iTunes, please let me know. I think I'm on um, Stitcher, but I'm, I don't think I'm on Spotify yet or anything like that. So let me know, and I'll try to figure out how to do that. <laughs> um, if you have a promo, send it over for, for anything. Please, I need some bumper promos. That would be great. This has been the Daily Rios episode 549, the 34th Digest for Sunday, February 27th, 2022. Talk to you soon. Mr. Miyagi, come on, admit it. We'll kick some butt. Julissa, fighting not good, but if must fight, win.